already. Hang on, I better put that at the bottom. It's going to squash my phone. <laughs> Good to have you all here today. Good to be sharing God's words with you as well. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. Today. Read with me. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in, uh, in prayer first before we uh, share this, uh, this morning. Father, we just thank you once again for um, this opportunity we have to look into your word. And we thank you so much for it, for it's the very thing which changes our lives, that has, has, um, has opened up our hearts and Father, and as a Father, we just pray that your Spirit would uh, would be working uh, on our hearts today to be able to uh, receive this word. Father, we hearts we, we pray that our hearts would be prepared uh, as good soil for that seed to go in and to grow and bear fruit. And we pray this morning um, that we would uh, take with us what we have learned today and to put into practice, Lord, only that we might glorify you. I pray that you bless me now as I attempt to share this, uh, this word that you've given to me with my brothers and sisters here. And I pray for all those, Father, who aren't here today. I pray that you'd be with them and bless them and bring them back safely to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You only have to open a TV for a little while or read a newspaper um, to discover that our world is full of violence. We're immune from it to a certain, for, to a certain extent over here in, in Australia. We might think we're a fairly peaceful sort of place, but um, might speak to someone like Alan who just roams the, um, the train stations at night. You might hear a very different story. Our world is full of violence, and much of that violence ends in killing and murder. And many people uh, in our world find themselves locked that way locked in prison because of their murderous acts. In Australia, I had a bit of a look in the, in the internet uh, last night. Uh, Australia averages around 230 to 240 murders per year. That's about in Australia, right? You might think it's not that 20 every month. That's five people every week that get killed, shot, and they die because of someone else's... Um, decision to exert violence upon them and much of that ends in death. And that doesn't count all the ones that become debilitated because of the violence as well. So people's um, intentions to, to, to hurt sometimes ends in death, but many times ends in people being hospitalised and not just hospitalised, but 
but incapacitated for the rest of their lives and affected in one way or another. So Australia is, is a violent place when you think about it. And much, much of our problem here in Australia is because of the, the, um, the love of alcohol, uh, which tends to get people um, uh, yeah, in the right state of mind to be doing that sort of stuff, as well as drug taking and the rest. Uh, Australians seem to love their, um, what do they call them? Recreational drugs, which often end in violence and death too. But why is murder evil? You've probably never asked or heard that question before, have you? Why is murder evil? Why is it wrong? You might think, well, that's obvious. But how obvious is it? Well, you might say, well, it's obvious because the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. It's the passage I've read uh, today. Thou shalt not kill. But why? Why did God make a command that says, thou shalt not kill? Well, it comes back to stealing, I think, a little bit. You know, when we say that someone's murdered someone else, we often use the phrase that their life was taken. Right? So it's a bit like stealing. And that's used in, in common language in this world that has no concept of God and doesn't want to believe in God. But the truth of the matter is that life, someone else's life is not yours or mine to take. And it's not just because it's theirs, but it's because it's God's. Because who was the one who gave the life in the first place? And the only one who has the right to take life is the one who gave life, and that's God. Because God owns, owns specifically all the life that he gave. It's his still. He didn't relinquish ownership of that life. So when he gave me life in my mother's womb, to this day, he still owns me. That life that he, ga that he gave to me is still his. He owns it. Whether I want to believe that or not, or whether someone else wants to believe that or not, it doesn't change, as Eddie was saying last week, it doesn't change anything about the truth. It doesn't change the truth at all. Whether you want to believe that the life that you have is yours and not God's, doesn't change the, the truth that it's actually God's. Only God can create life, so all life belongs to him. Man can't create life. Therefore, only God has the right to take life. And God himself declares that life to be so precious when he made it that he did something very special. He actually made it in his image. In his image. Now, God doesn't believe in idols, right? God doesn't like man making statues of God because it's not right. To do that, he says, Well, how can you make a picture of me or a statue of me or something else of me when it never really represents me? But God did something Himself. He actually made people, men, women, and children, to be in His image already. So when we see people in this world, we are seeing the image of God, just as if. A perfectly made statue or representation of God exists already. And, and they're living. And they're living because he's the one who gave that life. So when one man takes the life of another man, what he fails to see 
is that he is attacking the very image of God. And the life of a person is precious in so many other ways too. You think that, all right, we can say God's created man in his image and, and that image is, is beautiful. We need to respect that image. We need to, to value it the way God values it. Because it would be a bit like, you know, if, God, if we could represent God in a statue, right, and someone went there and started smashing it, what would you think? you think, that's sacrilegious. That's wrong. But yet God who created man in his image... We often don't see that, that, that similarity. And it's even more intense than that. Life is, the life of a person is, is precious in so many other ways because life connects with other lives. And those lives have what we call relationships with each other. And those relationships are precious to God because God is the one who began relationships. So God not, not only just gave a life, at the beginning, but what he did was to create the connections between those lives. So when a life is taken, the relationships that link all those lives together are destroyed as well. God hates that. God hates broken relationships. God hates suffering. And it's man who has caused so much suffering in this world. When someone takes the life of another person, it forever changes the lives of all the people around that person. Not only is that life being stolen from God, it's actually being stolen from everyone else around. Another thing to keep in mind when a person takes someone else's life is that they align themselves with someone in particular. Because the Bible says that Satan came to do only a few things. And the Lord Jesus says that Satan came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So when a person kills another person, what they're, what they're effectively saying is, I'm aligning myself with him now. I'm following his example. And Satan is the direct antithesis of God and would seek to destroy everything good that God has made. So murder is an evil act on a number of levels, on many levels. It steals life, it breaks relationship, it destroys hope, it causes heartbreak, and ends the precious essence that God gave as a gift. Now how is a command, thou shalt not kill, viewed by the average person in the street? Well, most people readily recognise and agree with the commandment. Most people in the street would say it's wrong to kill someone else. And it's interesting that when you share the gospel with people and you bring up the Ten Commandments, most of them know that commandment, don't they? They may not know the other ones, like coveting and, you know, and those sorts of things, but they'll generally know thou shalt not kill. And it's, and it's interesting because it's normally the first one they go to to justify themselves when you ask, do you think you're good enough to get into heaven? Oh, yeah. I've never killed anyone. If I had a dime, if I had a, well, not a dime, if I had a, a 10 cents for every time I've heard that specific phrase mentioned, I've never killed anyone. And that becomes the standard by which they're acceptable to God. 
By that simple standard, they feel good enough to enter into the heaven on their own merit. But the question really should be, is that what this command is simply saying? Is that all it means? Not to take the life of another person in an act of violence. Is it saying anything more than the blindingly obvious? Because if there is more to this command than the prohibition of getting a knife and stabbing someone to death, it needs to be brought out. And Jesus does precisely this in this passage. In these few verses, we look at murder or killing from heaven's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. He brings out that which is, which is spiritual. And we've been looking at um, the type of kingdom that Jesus was offering when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He was describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is how the citizens of heaven actually live while they're here on earth. And he was offering this kingdom to the Jewish people. And he was presenting a very clear picture of what the citizens of heaven behaved like. And not just the citizens of heaven, but the king of heaven himself and his heart. And Jesus presents five commands now. So we've gone through the, you know, the, you know, you're the salts of the earth and, and light of the world. We've gone through all that now. And now Jesus begins a, a second uh, or another section where he speaks about five declarations or five commands. And he starts each one, each one of those commands with this phrase, you have heard that it was said. All right? You've heard this. And then he says... But I say unto you, okay? He does this five times. Look at verse 21. The five commands that he looks at are the, one we're looking, the first one we're looking at today. Thou shalt not kill. Verse 27. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 33. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Verse 38. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And verse 43, thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. So he looks at, he takes five specific commands. And guess what? They're all found in the Old Testament. So he didn't misquote them. He actually took them as they were. And he says, you know, they've told you this, but I'm telling you something else. In each of these verses, Jesus simply states the law as it has been delivered in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not kill. But then, as if he was saying... But you have missed the point here. You haven't quite gained the right perspective on this. He proceeds to uncover the depth of such a simple verse. He takes it, he takes it to the next level. Or he digs down deeper to, to discover the actual truth behind that verse. Why God wanted that. And thou shalt not kill seems as a casual reading nothing more than a prohibition not to take someone's life in a physical way. And true, the vast majority of people would simply agree without giving it a second thought. But Jesus reveals that there is much greater depth to the law of God than we ever realised. Just focusing on the thou shalt not is not enough. And the fact that he links killing or murder with anger tells us that a casual reading of God's word is not sufficient if we really want to understand what God's word is teaching us. God wants us to meditate on his word. He wants us to ask the questions, why and how and if. And sometimes people read God's word and they're scared to ask those questions. 
But if we only asked those questions and gave the Holy Spirit an opportunity to teach us the whys and the hows and the wherefores, we would, un- we would discover the depth of God's word. We have the benefit today that they didn't have in Jesus' day. See, we have the benefit of the New Testament, right? And much of the Old Testament has been described and beautifully um, uh, revealed for us in the New Testament in this way. But when we read the Old Testament, are we also guilty of reading it superficially, as they did, as as the Pharisees and the Sadducees did? Are we giving the word of God the respect that it deserves? Turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2 say, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now let me ask you a question. If the Ten Commandments were so simple, that you could just read them and you understood them just like that, why would there be a need to meditate on God's law day and night? Why would you need to meditate on something if a superficial reading of it or a casual reading of that actually gave you enough information or gave you all you needed? The truth of the matter is that you need to meditate on God's law in order to discover the depths of it. There is a depth to God's word that can only be revealed if a person firstly approaches the word of God with the right heart, believing that it's true, submitted to God in his life, and at peace with him. You need to be in a peaceful place, in a place where the spirit of God can actually teach you through his word. Oftentimes we don't give, or most times we don't give God's word enough time to sink in. Calabrians, for those of you who don't know what my background is, I'm half Calabrian, right? Calabrians are known for having hard heads. I mean, I would generally agree with that, knowing a lot of Calabrians. I mean, it took me 10 years to get saved. It took me 10 years of hearing the gospel before I actually, before that truth actually finally sunk in but man generally is hard-headed Calabrians might be a bit better at it but men and women are generally hard-headed we don't allow God's word to sink in not just into our understanding but into our hearts for fear of sometimes what God might expect of us I don't want to go there because if I, if I allow God to teach me that specific truth, he may want something from me that I don't want to give. Sometimes we're scared to discover God's truth. We'd rather not know it. But I'm here to challenge you the other way today. I'm here to challenge you to dive into the depths of God's word, to give it the time 
to absorb it into your lives in a way that it transforms you from the inside out. And today we'll be looking at just this one, these two simple verses are going, you're going to see that a simple verse like thou shalt not kill has so much depth and meaning behind it that I want you to go away today, I really want you to go away and say, if that simple verse has so much depth to it and is connected in so many ways to other things, what about the rest of God's word? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers and he continually told them off in front of the people because what they did was simply give the superficial reading of God's word. And the laws that they, that they felt were important, they, they followed, other ones they neglected and they tended to add a few extra of their own in there because they didn't feel God's law was good enough to handle all, this, all the different situations. But today we need to understand one thing, that God's word is sufficient for all things. God's word is complete. You don't need more than God's word. You want to understand God's will in your life? Understand God's word. Because everything in God's will is contained in his word. And God will teach you everything you need to know about your life specifically through his word. Don't need lightning bolts and, and, uh, and, and thunderings and things from on high to understand what God wants of you. Oftentimes people say, what does God want from my life? What does God want me to do? The answer is, he wants you to know his word and to live it. And if you're, you know his word and you're living it, guess what? The rest of it you don't have to worry about. Because he's the one who opens the doors and he's the one who shuts the doors. And if you're walking on the path that he has for you, if you're working, walking in faithfulness, simple faithfulness, doing the things that he's asked you to do, then all this stuff falls into place. Jesus knew the depths of God's law. He understood the depth, the breadth. He understood, most importantly, how it was to be applied in every situation. In every situation, Jesus knew how to apply God's law because he had a perfect relationship with his Father and he was led by the Holy Spirit at every point. That should be a goal in our lives. We should want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We should want to be led by the Spirit in every decision that we make. Every thought that we have should be yielded to God. And when we say Jesus fulfilled the law, what we are really saying is that Jesus didn't just resist from killing someone. So when, Jesus, when, when we say Jesus fulfilled all the law, it wasn't just that Jesus didn't take a, a thing and, and not kill someone. What he actually did is that he fulfilled every depth, every nuance, every principle, every consequence, every moral foundation that's found in the law of God. Jesus fulfilled every part of it in the most perfect way. We often struggle to scratch the surface of God's word and understand it. And Jesus fulfilled the complete depth of it. In the most comprehensive way, Jesus fulfilled the law as no other man in history had ever done, nor will ever do. He not only satisfied the written law in every sense of the written law, but the spirit of the law. And that's the very righteousness that he actually offers to us. He offers us that righteousness, not just in a written form to say that Frank now has received the righteousness of Christ 
But you know something else? He actually gives us the ability to fulfill the righteousness. So that Christians don't have an excuse to sin. No excuse. And this is the danger of relying on the traditions of men. Even in our churches. Do you rely on me for all of your truth? Have I relied on someone else for all of my truth? And have they relied on someone else for all of, all of their truth? The Pharisees, think of this. In Jesus' day, when he was speaking to these people, the religious leaders of their day, the, the people they looked up to, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and when we think of those people, we automatically think of you know, these guys who everyone hated and, and you know, they were obviously looking bad in front of everyone. No, they weren't. They were the pastors of their day. They were the, the priests of their day. They were the, the people that everyone looked up to as the moral examples of their time. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were no doubt some of the most learned men of their time. A lot of the people were unlearned and unskilled. They didn't have school where you, you know, you'd send your kids you know, from the age of five and, and to the age of 17. They didn't have that. So people had to look up to these people to teach them. And Jesus rebuked these guys, these people, saying, you should know a lot better. You've learnt God's word. You understand God's, God's word. But instead of teaching the depths of God's word to people, what you do is you teach just a superficial version of it. But what hope do the people have when the spiritual leaders don't teach correctly? They failed according to the standard that Jesus was preaching. And they put at risk the very souls of their own people because of their own sin and lack of proper teaching. But the same danger exists today, brothers and sisters. It exists today. There are a multitude of people who just rely on what the pastor preaches from the front without ever questioning what is coming out of his mouth. They never line it up with the word of God and say, hang on a sec, is he teaching right here or not? And they put their own souls at risk for their lack of understanding because they aren't willing to look at God's word and say, let me see what God is saying here, rather than just depending on something that's being regurgitated from someone else's mouth. Sure, I can preach to you here, and the Bible teaches that preaching is an important part of what goes on in a church. It's essential. But what you do with the preaching that comes through this microphone every week is the most important part. Do you test it? Do you go out there and, if, and, and check it against God's word? Do you then live it? Pointless me, me speaking multitudes of words to you if they're just going like that. The Pharisees, my hope is that I'm not like a Pharisee or a Sadducee. I would hope that I'm teaching you the depths of God's word. Because if I'm not, I stand to be judged. But if, if I'm not, it's not just me who will be judged. It's you. For failing to keep me to account. To hold me to account. For failing to understand the word of God yourselves. Let's have a look what Jesus revealed in this command. 
Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. The term judgment here refers to the local courts of their day. So if you killed someone, just like today's court, bang, off to court, the case was brought against you, there might have been witnesses. If you were found guilty, then you suffer the consequences of that court. Okay? Fairly a simple idea. If you're prosecuted and convicted and found guilty, you were classed as a criminal, as a, as a murderer. And it's simple enough to understand. But Jesus adds another dimension to this whole thing when he says in verse 22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Again, hang on a sec. Danger of the judgment? How does, how does that work? Hang on a sec. One, one minute, Jesus is saying, if you kill someone, you're in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're in danger of the judgment too. The local courts in Palestine in those days were normally reserved for common criminals. So Jesus equated being angry with our proper cause, with your brother, as the same type of punishment that um, someone who murdered someone else received. And then he goes on and he says, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Well, what's the council? When you call someone Raka, stupid, it sounded, when you said the word, it sounded a bit like spitting. You know the you know the you know the the noise I, I'm thinking of. And Jesus says, if you, all right, you're angry with your brother, you're you're in danger of going to the going to the courts, and being judged the same way. And then he says, well, if you call your brother stupid, you're actually in, in judgment from the Sanhedrin Council which was another level. It was a bit like going to the high court where the really bad criminals went to. The bar has just been raised. So you're in danger. If you shout out, you stupid, you just earned your special place in the high court. And then he says another, he brings it to another level. He says, but whosoever shall say thou fool." shall be in danger of hellfire. I don't need to explain what hellfire is to you. But it's a place where there is no escape. There is no escape from this specific prison. There is no time limit. You know, if you, if you, you break a law in Australia, you, you, there might be a certain amount of time that you have to spend in jail, but after that, you're free to go. This place has no time limit. And Jesus says, if you call someone fool, that you're in danger of hellfire. Calling your brother a fool could see you spend an eternity in hell. And the, the Greek word for fool here is the same, sounds the same as the word moron. To calling your brother moron, same as, same as fool, but just gives you another perspective on it. What's going on here? The judgment normally accorded to murderers, Jesus deemed worthy of those whose anger led to verbal abuse. So notice it starts off with anger, then it went from anger to raka, 
Then it went from Raqqa to Fool, and every, at every time it actually elevated the severity of it. What's, this, what's going on? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 12 with me. Was Jesus adding something to God's law here? Was he adding something to it that actually made it more complicated and more? Or was this something that was already around? Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. A generation of vipers. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, or speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Jesus continues the same teaching elsewhere. In other words, every idle word, and we say idle, just the passing word that people say, will be judged by God. Jesus raised the bar. How high is that bar now? How many idle words do people speak on a daily basis where they're saying fool, idiot, moron? Jesus' teaching wasn't something new here. If you go to Proverbs chapter 6 with me, let's go back a little bit and let's see what the Bible, the Old Testament had to say about anger and words. Was this something new that Jesus was teaching? Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 says this, Got that? These six things doth the Lord hate. When God hates something, you don't want to be doing it, right? Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. If something's an abomination unto God, you don't want to be doing it. Verse 17, a proud look. A proud look. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. And heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that, are, that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. So Jesus in the so the Old Testament in the same passage put you know what hands that shed innocent blood are? People that murder someone else, right? Which is what we what we've been speaking about. But look at what he puts in the same passage. A proud look, a lying tongue. So the words that people speak and the imaginations, it says in verse 18, and the heart that devises wicked imaginations. In other words, you devise things in your mind. You think things about other people. You have evil intents. Are as evil to God and hateful and an abomination to God as much as someone whose hands are Shed innocent blood. What does this tell us? 
This tells us, and that small passage there tells us that God hates words that are not spoken in love. He hates the heart and the mind that devise evil things, that think evil thoughts, that put other people down. You may not speak those words, but if in your mind you have something against someone else, and you hate that person in your heart or in your mind without doing anything. God hates it just as much as whether you called them a fool and if you shed their blood. God hates it from beginning to end. And that death, that, that murder at the end is just a culmination of the one process that starts with anger. The traditional interpretation that was given to the people by the Pharisees fell far short. And when you put all these things together, like the, like the Proverbs and the Psalms, you notice that the actual killing is just the final phase of a, of a process that God hates. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees only condemned murderers when they had killed, right? When those hateful emotions manifest themselves into fruit that cause death. In other words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had no problem with people hating each other. So they may have had in their congregations people that despised each other. They never pulled them up. They didn't say that as an issue. Or being angry one with another wasn't an issue for them. It was only when they actually killed each other did they have a problem with it. But Jesus teaches clearly here that their concern should have been when the anger commenced, when the hatred was already there in the heart. Because God hates that as well, because God knows that specific thing leads to someone being killed. And they failed. They failed in that, that very thing. Their goal should have been the restitution and reconciliation of their people one to another. But instead they allowed feeling and emotions to fester without any constraint until it was too late. They did not realise that these hateful feelings were the root cause that ended in murder, that would occur at a later date. And these feelings and these ideas were themselves contradictory to God's law. The law always taught that anger was wrong. Let me read out some, without necessarily going there, I'll read out some passages. Psalm 37, right? Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Cease from anger. In other words, when you see something going wrong, don't get angry and let that anger fester into hatred. Proverbs 22, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Another warning against ang anger. Proverbs 29, an angry man stirreth up strife and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Why does the Lord warn us about anger so much? Turn back with me to Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 4. Why does God warn us so much about anger? Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. Read with me. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall not thou, thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with his brother, with his Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Do you understand see where it started? Cain was doing something wrong. Abel was offering the firstlings of his flock, as God had commanded. Cain was a tiller of the ground and offered his, his, uh, his fruits of the ground. And God said, but I didn't ask you for the fruits. I wanted a lamb. I wanted something from the flock. So Cain had to go to his brother to get the thing. But because Cain had pride in his heart already, he kept on offering the fruit of the ground to God. And God says, that's not what I want. You're doing wrong. But the more that he did wrong, the more he got upset because God wasn't accepting his, his sacrifice, but he was accepting his brother's sacrifice. So what, he, what does he do? It says here in verse 6, sorry, verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect, and Cain was very wroth. What's wrath? He was angry. What's he angry for? He's doing the wrong thing. So he becomes angry. And God says to him, be careful. God warns him and says, I'll accept you if you do the right thing. Listen to me, Cain. I'll accept you if you do the right thing. But if you do the wrong thing, be careful. Sin is waiting at the door for you and it wants you. You need to rule over it. But notice the progression here. Cain did wrong, his brother did right. Cain compared himself to his brother and concluded that God was wrong with respect to his wrong offering. And as a result, Cain becomes wroth or angry. God knows that he's angry, so God warns Cain and says, you're vulnerable to sin now. So what are you going to do with that anger, Cain? Are you going to do what's right or are you going to do what's wrong? Cain now had a choice of what to do with his anger. He was angry. It was wrong in the first place to be angry, but what he does with that anger then actually makes the problem seriously worse or goes back and, and, and fixes it up. What does he do? He chooses to hate God, to blame God, because God wouldn't change his rules for him. And as a result, his hatred turned toward his brother, whom God did accept. And that hatred... That anger turned to hatred, which turned to murder. That's why the New Testament, in the Old Testament, warns us of our attitudes and our feelings. You know, God created us with feelings, right? 
Are our feelings always in line with the truth of God, with the word of God? They're not. Oftentimes, our feelings are the results of our fallen nature. So the first feelings that immediately come to you are often the wrong feelings. But the question is, what you do with those feelings that makes the world of difference. If you see anger rising up in your, in your heart about something, the question is what you do with it. That's why Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put it away from you. There isn't the rising up of anger in most people is a result of our fallen nature. And often the emotions that we feel aren't the right emotions. And they lead us in the wrong direction. The question is what we do or how we deal with the emotion that makes the big difference on the track. Your anger, if you leave it to fester, your anger, if you leave it to grow, will grow roots. It grows roots. And you know the fruit of anger? becomes hatred. And eventually, if hatred bears fruit, it turns into something much worse, physical violence. But there's a problem. If hatred is in someone's heart, it's an indication of an unregenerate heart. Let me read this passage out to you. We know that we have passed from death unto life. This is 1 John. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And John, and John repeats it again a chapter later. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? That's a good test, isn't it? If you can't love your brother in Christ, how can you say you love God? The examination of the soul may be that you have to question whether you are indeed regenerate or degenerate. Now, is anger, is, is anger itself a sin? I would say no. And you might say, well, hang on a sec. Aren't you, haven't you been saying that anger is anger's wrong? Well, you can be angry about some things, the Bible says. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. See, you can be angry about certain things, but it's what you do with that anger and where that anger is directed. And the interesting thing is that Jesus was often angry you find in scriptures too. So if anger in itself is a sin, then Jesus sinned, and, and that's not right because Jesus never sinned. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the men, said unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, whole as the other. Jesus often got angry at the hardness of people's hearts and the sin that they wanted to hold on to so much. Let me give you an example. 
I hate abortion. I hate it. With a passion. I get angry when I hear about it. Because when a, a, an unborn baby is killed within its mother's womb, it's contrary to everything I believe the Bible teaches. I believe it's, it's, it's the same murder as if you were killing someone who was fully grown outside of the womb. It's the same murder. I hate it. I get angry. Now the question is, what do I do with that anger? I can be angry because God's word is continually being broken and lives are being destroyed. But if I direct that anger at a politician, let's say, and blame a politician and begin to hate that a politician because of their view about it, am I doing right or am I doing wrong? What I've done is I've actually begun to hate a person rather than the actual hardness of the heart. Do you see the difference? And if I, if I get angry and I hate a particular person enough, you've seen some things happen in the States, for instance, where people get killed. And it's because what they've done, instead of having righteous anger, they've turned it into personal anger and hatred towards people and individuals. It's a bit like looking at an unsaved person who's in, who's in the depths of sin and saying, I hate that person. Well, how can you hate that person? It doesn't make sense. God calls us to go and rescue that person and save them from that sin. So if you hate that person, you have no chance of actually rescuing that person and winning that soul. God calls us to love the sinner. God calls us to love our enemies. But the thing I want you to take away with you today is that anger directed to an individual and left long enough becomes hatred for the individual. Anger is an emotional response to a given situation. Hatred, on the other hand, is a choice that's made riding on the back of that emotion. And it becomes like a runaway stagecoach. You know those, those, um, those um, cowboy movies? Ever seen those? Where the horses get spooked and then the hero has to jump on the horses to try to rescue them, otherwise someone's going to get run over and people are going to get killed. It's like that. You get angry. You make a choice then to hate as a result of that anger. It becomes like a runaway stagecoach. You can't stop it. It takes you away. And hatred is the equivalent of spiritual murder. That's why James says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Let me conclude. Jesus brought out the depths of God's law. So understand this. When you read the word of God, understand there is much depth to it. Much depth. And that takes time to dig out. If you want to really grow in the Lord, give yourself time for that. Give yourself time to absorb God's word. But more importantly even, is that have a willing heart to live that word. It's like I was talking in, during communion time. God wants to do two things, to know God's word and to live it. He wants us to, to know it and to live it. And by living it, it means you're also sharing it. And if you share it and you have a life that's consistent with that message, people are more likely to listen to what you're saying. God's law is perfect. 
And what God's law does is it actually drives us to Christ. Think about the people that were with Jesus, right? Jesus is standing up high on a mountain and he's speaking to all these people and he said, you know, you've heard it said if you, if you kill, you're going to go to the judgment. But I'll tell you something. If, you, if you're angry with your brother and you call him Raka, if you call him a fool, you might be, you might be going to hell. How do you think the people would have responded, the average person? They would have said, what? I just called my brother a fool last week. I've got this against that person and this against that person. The average people today, the same as they were back then, they would have responded in exactly the same way. They would have been shocked at what he just said. And they would have realised that they were all guilty under God's law. All guilty. So what, what did it do? God's word used and God's law used properly drives a person to Christ because you realise it's not just me stabbing someone and killing them that's going to send me to hell. It's actually just getting angry with them that could send me to hell. And, mate, I've been angry with so many people. I can't keep track of that. So I need a saviour here. I need someone who can save me from the situation. There's your solution. There's a lamb, the spotless lamb of God, who lived the perfect life, who then went and shed his blood for you at Calvary. There's your solution. Can you do it? Can you live God's law? You can't. You can't match up to that standard. But there's one who has the grace. And that's the beautiful thing about grace. We fall, and we have fallen, far short of the grace of God. But God provides grace. Not just to match up with the things that we've fallen short with. It's not just a filling, a gap filler, but it actually gives you the ability to be able to live it after as well. It gives you the ability to live it and a desire for it. That's what being a Christian actually means. We aren't under the law of Christ. We, sorry, we aren't under the law of God. We can't stand condemned by it anymore, but we can live it because God's put his law within our heart. And we now have the ability through the Spirit of God living in the, with us to actually live this thing and actually live the depths of it. Because remember, Jesus Christ is in you. So remember, if you're a Christian today, keep your anger in check. When you see anger starting to rise up within you, immediately say, why am I angry? Ask yourself the question, and then choose the right way to deal with it. Deal with it according to God's word. Don't let anger get the better of you because it will consume you as much as it consumes anyone else. And if you do have a problem with anger, there is a Chinese proverb. I don't normally quote Chinese proverbs, but I like this one. It says, The fastest horse cannot catch a word spoken in anger. The fastest horse cannot catch a word spoken in anger. You know something? Before you speak... If you have anger inside you, before you say something, allow that to produce a fruit, right? Because you can't take back the word once you've said it. Think plenty of times before you say anything. And it's better not to speak when you're in a state of anger. It's better to speak when you've dealt with the anger already and you've, and you've prayed about it. Recognise anger within you before you allow it to take you by the neck and drag you around wherever it wants to go. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, 
If you don't know whether you're saved or not, and you have a problem with anger and you realise, hey, yeah, actually, yeah, anger's still a problem for me. If you don't know your solution just yet, if you haven't met him, it's all about him, you see. Because he's the one who is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who has all the answers to all of your problems. You can try and fix up your own life, but you will never match God's, God's law. You will never be able to match the standard that he set because God's law is so deep and perfect. But God has provided a way for you to be saved. And that's by accepting Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, understanding what he's done for you on the cross and accept the blood that was shed for you because that's the blood that cleanses you from all sin and makes you a new creature. God is offering you that today. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, don't waste another moment. Don't, don't play or, or, be, or be drawn away by the devil's lies that you've got plenty of time on your plate. You don't. You know, I told you before that, that Calabrians are hard-headed and it's true. And I regret, I regret waiting till I was 19 years old before I accepted the Lord. They were 10 wasted years of my life knowing the truth and never living it and never experiencing Jesus Christ in my life. Believe me, if you do come to a point and you wait, you will look back and you'll say, what did I do with all that waste of time? Don't let your hard head or a hard heart stop you from coming to Christ. And if you have a problem this morning and you know you're a child of God, then come to him. He won't reject you. If you need prayer, come and see me. We'll pray for you. I'm happy to pray for you. Prayer is good. Come to church. One of the reasons we come to church is to support one another. It's not easy sometimes. God bless you. Thank you.